You know, there's been a lots of hand-wringing over learning in our schools with some students still working remotely. The private schools have welcomed youngsters since the start of the fall semester on some campuses. We circled back to talk to the principal of Aikahi Elementary School here on Oahu. Students began returning to the classroom last month. Here's Kiyoki Fraser. They started coming back in the second quarter. Uh, we had kids here in the first quarter who needed to be here, uh, who needed that support, but we got them all back here in January from kindergarten to sixth grade. How's that working out? Because I know uh, when we last talked to you, the parents had created those outdoor classrooms, but it's been windy and rainy. So how are the kids doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. The kids are, you know, in a lot of ways doing awesome, and, and it's going well, I always got to say that when people ask with little reservation because we're doing our best to have safety practices in place and to mitigate any issues as far as the virus goes. You know, but you can do all those things and still end up in a situation because, you know, it might come to school or, you know, there could just be, you know, there's just so many moving parts to it. But as far as the kids, they love being on campus. They love seeing their friends. They're happy. They're being respectful and responsible. And I think you know, that's been the best part about all of this is, is finding a way to safely get them back to campus. So were you able to help guide the students and get them used to what it was going to be like? Yeah, so a big part of it was training them, walking them through the process and the protocols and making sure that, you know, they knew where to go and how to walk and what the expectations were. But I can tell you the biggest surprise that we've had as the staff here at the school is just how amazing and resilient the kids are. Whether it's mask wearing, whether it's trying to keep their distance while walking in lines, whether it's saying, hey, I don't feel good, can I go talk to the health nurse, or parents letting us know, hey, there's a situation that we're dealing with at home. It's been nothing but a total team effort between home and school to, um, you know, to pull it off. And, and, it, and each day is a new day, and we, and we do our best every single day to be safe. I'm sure the students are just happy to be there with their friends again. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't think, I mean, we, we talk about it as adults, the importance of kids socializing, being at school, having a structure. But from what I've seen and, and just seeing their appreciation and, and how much more, I think, um, aware they are of, of, you know, how lucky they are to have friends and to be at school. I mean, it's, it's just been great for them. And we had, we had a lot of kids that it just wasn't working from home. We had awesome parents. Our teachers are amazing. But the home learning thing is just not for everybody. And, and for all of them coming back, who have come back, I think they're doing better in school. But they're also happy. And they're also, you know, doing an awesome job with all the responsibilities. So... Um, it's a lot to undertake as a school community, but I couldn't be prouder of our teachers, our staff, our health aides, amazing, our front office, our parents, our students. The DOE has provided us all the resources we need, so I feel like all in all, it's been a, a total team effort to try to make each day a successful safe day. And how are you doing, you know, with all the equipment? Because I know some private schools, you know, have 3D printers and they printed up masks. But, you know, not everybody has that ability. And so do you have shower curtains up? Do you, you have partitions? How does that work? Yeah, so our school is fortunate because we're in an area where we have great support from the community. So things that we need in addition to the basic PPE requirements and things like that, you know, we've been very fortunate in that regard with parents being able to support us and help us out. Um, but my colleagues who are in, you know, in, in on the winter side, you know, I think a lot of us feel like we have, you know, the adequate supplies and we're getting things replenished and, you know, we're able to safely mitigate things. And from what I've seen, as far as like just what I'm aware of, as far as like data with COVID cases on campuses, yes, they do happen because somebody goes to an outing or a family member at home, you know, brings it home and then they, they sometimes come to school and then we find out about it. What I haven't seen is a lot of community spread 
where, say, a student or a teacher comes to campus, and then we have to go through the protocol, isolate and test and all that, and to contact trace. I haven't seen instances, knock on wood, where it's going from that one person to another person or several other people, which I think is you know, our biggest concern. Yes, yeah, so K-2 is our priority as far as on-campus learning, so we added teachers to those grade levels, and we are small enough to have them at six feet in the classroom. Upper grades, we just don't have that luxury. We just don't have enough classrooms. Even with our outdoor spaces, we just don't have enough, you know, physical spaces, and we don't have enough teachers. So, you know, we're not able to bring all of them back because if we bring back, you know, 20-plus kids in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, um, it's just not possible for us, to, for us to be at six feet at this time. Okay, so you're just alternating uh, when they're when the kids are in class? Yes, correct. So A group, B group comes, and, you know, they rotate, and they come throughout the week, and uh, we do the best we can. And we have our kids log on from home so that when they're not at school, they're still with their teacher, and that's been very helpful as far as making sure the kids do quality work and they get the help and support that they need versus just being left to their own devices, if you will, to complete whatever work is assigned to them. And some of the teachers have had their vaccinations. I know at, at certain private schools. What's the snapshot uh, at your campus? So a lot of teachers are getting the vaccination, and that's awesome. And, and I, I don't think every teacher is going to take up that opportunity. I know some people are still waiting for you know their appointment, but a lot have gotten it, and I think that's awesome. And you know we've been able to you know find a way to get them done either here at the local hospital in Kailua or you know, through partnerships with different agencies. So it's, it's happening. It's something I think is, you know, working its way through. And, and here shortly, every teacher, I think, would have, and staff member, um, would have had the opportunity to get the, the vaccination. And, and that has extended to our health aid, it's extended to our custodians, our cafeteria staff members. So it's really, really good that we've been able to get in there and have this opportunity. And what are you hearing uh, about the complex in general? As far as vaccination goes? Yes. Same. I think a lot of people are getting it. You know, they, the DOE is sending out surveys who's interested and they're making appointments and opportunities available through different partnerships. And I think, you know, for the most part, you know, there's a lot of privacy laws, so I don't know exactly who got the vaccine, vaccination, but um, I think a lot of teachers are, are taking advantage of the opportunity. Looking back over this past year and, and all of the things that you've had to do differently, I guess what's the takeaway as we, uh, you know, move into 2021? You know, for me, the takeaway is extremely positive. This has been an extremely challenging um, thing to work through. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're living history. We're, we're going through a pandemic, um, and we're trying to educate kids, and that brings together hundreds of people every single day from hundreds of households. So all of that happening in real time um, has been not always easy, but I don't know if I've ever seen a group of people, a community come together and work to try to make things happen um, like I've seen with our school's experience, and we have to listen to each other. It's not always easy. Sometimes we have differences of opinion, but at the end of the day, everybody's going to do all they can to help our kids be successful and to help us all be safe. And our teachers are amazing. I have nothing but respect for, for them because they're literally in there with the kids, and so they're the ones that are most exposed to kids. And, you know, we've talked about issues. We've talked about challenges. We've worked through solutions. We continuously evaluate um, but the biggest takeaway for me is no matter what obstacles thrown at, at us and, and at teachers and staff members at schools, I'm just proud to be part of the public education system. And, and I'm happy that, you know, we're doing all we can to, you know, to try to help our kids. That was Kiyoki Fraser, principal of Aikahi Elementary School, talking about the return to the classroom of his Windward Oahu students.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Stuart Brown, author of Play. Next time on New Dimensions, I'm going to be talking about how it shapes the brain, opens the imagination, and invigorates the soul. Sunday morning at 11. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Vegetables and fruits were an important source of sustenance for Polynesian voyagers on their trans-Pacific journeys. It may sound surprising, but large swaths of the Pacific Ocean contain relatively meager stocks of fish. Thus, Polynesian voyagers couldn't always rely on fishing to feed themselves. Although some livestock were carried, those were intended for breeding new populations at the destination. Plants made up the nutritional foundation of voyagers during their lengthy crossings. On shorter voyages, the produce could be eaten fresh, but for longer journeys, it had to be preserved. One fruit commonly eaten by early voyagers was fermented as a means of preservation. It has become a common sight around the world after being transplanted from Tahiti by William Bly, captain of the HMS Bounty, famous for the mutiny carried out by the ship's crew. If you know the name of this fruit that fueled early Polynesian voyagers, call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at nareethawaii.com.
Saranoff School in Honolulu has a new president, and she has a long history with the school. Shauna Tong stepped up to serve as the interim head of school after the previous president, Perry Martin, departed for a job on the mainland this past summer. Tong's very familiar with the school. She attended Marinol from kindergarten through 12th grade. She graduated in 1983. She's also worked as a teacher and principal for 30 years at the school and was most recently the vice president of academic affairs. She spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about school operations during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, at the K to 8th grade level, uh, they have the option of online or in-person. And we've been running in person since uh, right after Labor Day, so early September. And uh, let me see, out of our 500, 600 students at our grade school campus, only about 75 of them are on online. But our teachers are truly rock stars. I mean, they are teaching children face-to-face, and they're teaching children face-to-computer um, with all of the subjects in play. And then at the high school, they have three options. They can be a full-time learner um, on campus. They can have a hybrid where they come in on certain days, or they could go all online. You know, in the midst of a pandemic, you really um, can either take it as negative challenge or you can move forward and say this is great the face of education is changing we're ready and let's see how we can change education in a positive way that continues the educational process and gives the skills for lifelong learning to our students. I had questions about a specific program Uh, I know the Chinese immersion program um, uh, has been highlighted before uh, what is the uh, status of that program? Uh, I, uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that uh, there were students who came uh, to Marino and also uh, the, there were trips to uh, China uh, as well in the past. Right. Well, the trips to China in the past were actually when we had a um, Japan, China, Costa Rica. That was our exchange program. And we do have partnerships with schools in China. And those students were part of our Envoy program where they would, um, two teachers and two or three students would go to China and they would stay there for a couple of weeks and teach. And that was an exciting time for them. And then teachers and students from China would come to Hawaii and be with our Marino community, just as we do with Japan as well. Um, That's an exciting point because, you know, really in today's world, you really want your students to see the world beyond themselves and to be global citizens and global thinkers. And the connection to international uh, programs or partnerships with other schools is really exciting and will give them those diplomatic skills that they'll need in um, future business and in future world dealings. Right now, our current third graders were our first uh, Mandarin immersion class beginning in kindergarten. So we have over 175 students in Mandarin immersion uh, over the kindergarten through third grade level. And um, it gives them an opportunity to have 50% of the day in English and 50% of the day in Mandarin. And in the Mandarin classroom, there is no English speaking at any time. So the MX Scholar programs, can you uh, tell our listeners about that and uh, how that's going? 
Sure, that's an exciting program. You know, we just got off of our, um, right before the pandemic shutdown, we were accredited by three accrediting bodies, the WASC, um, the HAIS, and the Western uh, Education and Catholic Association. And we have task force to go and evaluate the program to make things better. So we're in the process of rebranding or rethinking um, our Merino Pathways, Merino Scholar Pathways Program, uh, MX. And what it does is when you're at your freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, you're starting to already think about, wow, what college do I want to go to? You know, what am I going to major in? What do I want to be? Um, and this opportunity gives them a chance to really see what path they would want to take. So currently, it's our elective program. Students will determine if they want to just potpourri, try all of the different programs, or if they would like to take electives from one specific um, pathway. And if they take all of the credits in a particular pathway, then they are labeled or acknowledged, designated as an MX um, or what will be the Merino Scholar Pathway participant. And upon that, we have the STEM and Aerospace right now, the Business and Diplomacy Program, uh, Creative Arts and Expression, and Medical Innovations. I wanted to ask about enrollment. I understand St. Anne's School in Kaneohe recently uh, announced that they were going to close in private schools as well. Um, prior to the pandemic, um, we're having some financial and enrollment difficulties. So how is Marinol School doing right now? Did you see, what was the change in enrollment uh, with the pandemic? Well, with the limited children available in the marketplace, all schools are seeing a lower enrollment. Um, and, you know, we're sad for the schools that do have to you know, we, our thoughts go out to them, and we want to support them in whatever way we can. Um, fortunately, we do have a strong program that has drawn students, and we're in our admissions process right now accepting students. Um, a slight decline, but hopeful, and, you know, really, you sell your program and you're selling your school, and interest from other parties, you know, some of the other schools that um, students are now coming to us, so we're hoping to be not too low below what we've normally been. Okay, so uh, fairly steady, uh, a, a bit of a dip, but uh, fairly steady. Okay. Yes, just um, the whole dynamic of, you know, children in the marketplace who would be uh, ready to come to a private school um, has declined. You know, we see that all over, even in public schools in certain districts and what have you. Okay, so it, it, a matter of... Uh, Children of a certain age are just uh, we, uh, as a state, that population is is not as uh, populous as before. Right, I would say that, and we have seen number of families who are choosing to move to the mainland. You know, in this time of pandemic, but then we also see an influx of students who want to come to Marino because we are face to face on campus learning at this time, and parents can see that as a plus. Um, for their child's education and instruction. Since you're officially uh, president now, what do you uh, hope to accomplish uh, in this position um, during your tenure? Well, Marino is 
you know, unique in that um, because of our small footprint and our smaller population, we're able to make change at a more quick uh, pace. Um, bringing the school community together uh, to have children reach their maximum potential. And how we do this is we are offering programs that help children to really explore their interests. So, you know, the Mandarin Immersion Program is really the only program in the state that would be catering, um, you know, during a full-time school day. And then as we develop that, it will give students an opportunity to expand their knowledge of their Mandarin, but then also the global perspective. And then when they get to high school, you know, they may even be so advanced that they could take, you know, college courses at that time. So that's our long-term goal for that particular program. And then for the MX, um, right now, you know, what we're calling our Marino Scholar Pathways Program, uh, expanding that so that we have the facility and the space to match those particular programs. We have students, you know, who are in Civil Air Patrol and, you know, flying planes, learning how to fly. We have students in medical innovation who are able to partner uh, with a physician or a nurse or um, different types of research. And those kinds of opportunities, when expanded, could really open a child's world to their future and giving them a head start on what they want to do when they go to college. That was Shauna Tong of Marinol School. She spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about her goals as she begins her tenure as president. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today gives us a snapshot of the eviction moratorium. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us this morning. Hi, Anita. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, so I saw in the headlines this morning that in Texas, a federal judge uh, ruled that the CDC eviction moratorium was unconstitutional. And then I saw that in Seattle, there was another a judge who went the other way. So what does this all mean uh, you know, to us here in Hawaii? Wow. Yeah, well, I, I also was surprised by the news out of Texas this morning. Um, so my understanding is that that particular ruling is regarding the federal eviction moratorium. And so it's, it's confusing because they're called the same thing. They're both eviction moratoriums. But there's a federal one and then there's a state one. And the Hawaii one is different from the CDC one. And so I don't know if there's any implication from this ruling about the federal eviction moratorium and its impact on the state. But my understanding is that um, renters have really been relying on the state eviction moratorium here and that it's more expansive than what the CDC does. So the CDC one is more limited. It's, it's limited to people under a certain income um, level. It's imita- limited to people whose um, income has been affected by the pandemic, whereas um, the one under the EGA administration is more sweeping. So if you are a renter um, and you don't pay your rent, your, your landlord can't evict you now. And that is um, kind of th- no matter what your income is or, or whether or not it's been affected by the pandemic. And that's been frustrating for some landlords um, because it is it is uh, pretty um, wide ranging. 
And I know we had the situation where, you know, you're trying to help the landlords, but some of them weren't uh, agreeing to participate in, in the, uh, uh, you know, the rental assistance. And it's not real clear. I know some folks were thinking, oh, maybe they weren't um, putting that income down and are just reluctant to, uh, you know, be singled out like that. But, yeah, so, so tell us about the bills then that are going through the legislature so there are a couple of proposals going to the legislature, and they're kind of like twin proposals for people who don't follow the legislature closely. This is very common where the same bill is introduced in the Senate and the House, and then they're each amended, and so they kind of change along the way. And at the end of the session, the lawmakers on the House and the Senate have to kind of come to an agreement where they're like they nail down the details of the bill, and then they usually just pass you know one. Or if they don't come to an agreement, then neither of them passes. And so this proposal is um, aimed at kind of creating like an off-ramp of sorts for the state to be able to lift the eviction moratorium without this flood of eviction. So I was talking to a attorney who represents landlords, and he said, you know, usually every year there's 1,600 to 1,800 eviction cases filed in um, Honolulu. And, you know, with the moratorium, it's been almost a year where like almost none of those could be filed. And so I, the sheriffs actually have, I think, executed 26, I want to say, if I'm remembering that correctly, evictions, but that's, you know, very low compared to what would normally be done. And so um, the concern is that, you know, once the moratorium is lifted, not only will there be, um, you know, an increase in homelessness, but that the courts themselves would be overwhelmed. And that then if, if you are a landlord trying to evict a tenant, then you would have to be waiting months in order for them to, to you know, that your case to be even heard. And so the idea is to rely on something called mediation, where, um, you know, separate from the court process, the landlord and the tenants meet with a mediator um, for about an hour and a half, and they try to come up with a deal. And so what this, this bill would do is it would require landlords to participate in mediation if the tenant requests it. Um, and the idea is that, well, if you find a space this, for landlords to come to the table, then maybe they can reach some kind of deal and that this would avoid the whole court process. Um, but what critics are saying about this is that maybe this doesn't go far enough because there is no requirement that landlords participate in good faith. All the, it's basically just that they have to show up if they're asked to. And so, you know, there's this sort of question is like, will they be um, agreeing to a deal um, or will they just, you know, want that tenant out in which case, you know, the eviction will move forward. Right, because you want something meaningful, not just, a warm body just to say, hi, Judge, I'm here. Yeah, and that was kind of interesting because on one hand, you know, a landlord's attorney I interviewed was saying, well, they have an incentive to participate because they want their money. Although it's mediation, you know, they might get their money, um, like less money or they might get their money more slowly, you know. Um, it's, it's sort of unclear because it all depends sort of on the individual case. But on the other hand, I was talking to an attorney from a, a national nonprofit that um, advocates on behalf of tenants, and he was saying that in the... Um, you know, housing crisis in 2008, there were a lot of banks foreclosing on homeowners. And that one thing they did was require that banks um, participate in good faith, or some jurisdictions did this, where they required that banks participate in mediation and good faith um, in order to ensure that those um, were actually meaningful. So right now that's not in the bill, mm. um, but it, it is a very interesting bill in terms of requiring mediation and giving also uh, tenants a little bit more time after they receive an eviction notice before landlords can move forward with filing a summary possession. Well, it was interesting that you reported that 
there are some evictions that are happening uh, because I think maybe a lot of folks don't realize that there are uh, eviction notices, uh, you know, actually being handed down like that. But thanks. Yeah, so it's, it's, oh, sorry. No, but thanks so much. I really uh, appreciate you uh, uh, focusing uh, the spotlight on this. Thanks. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Palhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. This week on Science Friday, poor countries remain far behind the rich ones in getting COVID-19 doses. There is frustration with their own governments as well as the global system. But also, there is resignation. That's the sad part of it. I've heard more than once, like, what did you expect? We'll talk vaccine inequities around the world on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Bavarian Motor Experts. This morning, HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us to talk about disinformation, but she is taking the global view. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. This was so interesting. You know, it's part of an East-West Center program. It's their seminars live series, and they offered one recently called A Global Contagion of Infodemics and Conspiracy Theory, hmm. and it featured international experts on those topics. Conspiracy theories are nothing new, but these experts noted that as the COVID pandemic spread, an infodemic of disinformation and conspiracy theories found new audiences. And I think you'll be surprised by the global businesses that they say are fueling the spread. Stephen Lewandowski is a professor and chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol there in the UK. He co-authored the Conspiracy Theory Handbook, came out last year. He says, when people lose control of aspects of their lives, some people are vulnerable to believing conspiracy theories. And Lewandowski says, this is important during COVID because studies show people who believe conspiracy theories are less likely to follow health guidelines or get vaccinated. Endorsement of conspiracy theories has been linked to violence. In Britain, they've had attacks on 5G installations because of a conspiracy theory that linked 5G broadband to COVID. Have you heard that? Yes, I remember those stories, and I was thinking, this is like just what we need, something else, you know. But but comes out of left field for most people. Lewandowski says more than 20 experts on disinformation agree that there's a nuanced phenomenon taking place here. Psychologically and cognitively, 
misinformation sticks in memory even when it is corrected. That is what makes the situation so difficult. Because what is happening is that when we walk through the world and we're encountering information, we're continuously building a mental model of the world. And if somebody tells us all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, something that you believe to be true is actually a myth, it's extremely difficult for us to update our mental model. So we're in a situation where people can often tell us that a myth is false because they have understood and believed the correction, but they act as if they still rely on the misinformation because people prefer a complete mental model that's incorrect to one in which there is a core component missing. Hmm. Lewandowski says the most important solution is to inoculate people against disinformation ahead of time. Tell people how they're going to be misled, even though you may not know the exact content. Lewandowski says there actually is evidence that preparing people against disinformation ahead of time actually does work. There is, however, another complicating factor. According to Tom Rosenstiel, Executive Director, American Press Institute there in Arlington, Virginia. Another dynamic, which we've learned from research, is that you can make people believe things that they know are not true by repetition. There's a study from the University of Indiana that shows that you can make people believe that Scottish men wear saris, not kilts, if you repeat that often enough. Then you also have the press trying to fight the rise in disinformation and conspiracy theories by telling people you're wrong, you're wrong, which actually digs in their worldview that they're being talked down to by a media that is hectoring and lecturing them. Yeah, we saw that repetition with the, yeah. with the president and his tweets. Some of that stuff stuck. And it's sticking is the thing. You know, that's what gets people um, concerned here. The fact that people believe what they want to believe, and they're finding out there are ways to make people want certain things. And exactly what you're saying, it's repetition. This is so interesting. Also featured in that Easter Center webinar, Anna-Sophie Harling, Managing Director Europe and Executive Vice President for NewsGuard in London. She explained how algorithms and the suggestions they provide can construct an entire online ecosystem. Individuals live in realities that are shaped by their online information ecosystems, which are constructed by algorithms, which seek to maximize financial returns for tech platforms. As mentioned before, the pandemic has also exacerbated financial inequalities. And when you compound this with increased political polarization, users can definitely exist in an online world in which COVID is a hoax, vaccines kill, and Trump is our only solution to a dangerous new world order led by Bill Gates. These are definitely the same people who are shopping at the same grocery stores as us. Uh, Anna-Sophie Harling there with NewsGuard London. This phenomenon is global. It's global as well as here in Hawaii. And Southeast Asia is leading the world in a lot of types of social media usage. At first, it was Twitter. Jakarta was once a capital city of Twitter, and usage per day is still really high in the Philippines, Myanmar, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Now, Ross Tapsell is director of Australian National University's Malaysia Institute in Canberra. And he says the high usage is because that market over there was flooded with cheap blackberries from China. 
He says, Southeast Asia's really been innovative, creating businesses around social media and disinformation. And in some ways, he says, the West is behind. Southeast Asians are fantastically innovative at using social media amongst urban middle-class youth who are entrepreneurs. Also innovation from the political classes and from PR firms who are experts at creating networks of disinformation. And the classic story would be to remind everyone that Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines was elected around this highly impressive and in some ways innovative way of using disinformation around drugs and crime. My research has been spending time in this industry, interviewing people who work as either trolls in the Philippines, uh, cyber troopers in Malaysia, or buzzers, as they're called locally in Indonesia. So it's this new labor force, which has been prominent in the call center industry and in the digital labor industry for some time. This professionalization of the disinformation industry is an emerging form of labor. And that's what's driving much of this in the region. That was Ross Tapsell. He's the director of Australian National University's Malaysia Institute. And he says hyperpartisan news is part of what they're creating and disseminating there. They do a lot of things to pretend that they're bona fide news sites. And he says that identity politics has become a driver for this disinformation industry. Yeah, you know, you just reflect back and you think about how the seeds of distrust were sown way back when. And then, you know, leading up to what we saw January 6th on our nation's capital. Yeah, you can see this. So, you know, you always think it's happening somewhere else. And then when it's on our, our front door, it's startling. Oh, so much so, Catherine. It's fascinating. Fascinating look at, at uh, the times that we live. But thank you so much, Noe. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Happy Aloha Friday. You've been hearing from Noe Tanigawa. For links to the webinar, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Today in our Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name a type of fruit that was often fermented and eaten by Polynesian voyagers crossing the Pacific. It's believed that our mystery fruit was originally found in New Guinea. Early humans expanding from mainland Asia found the fruit to be much easier to cultivate than rice, and it eventually became a staple of the Polynesian diet. European sailors brought it from the South Pacific to the Caribbean and Africa, and it can now be found in tropical climates around the world. A Hawaiian legend holds that this fruit originated where the war god Ku sacrificed himself to save his starving family during a famine. It is known by many different names around the world, but the most common is ulu, or breadfruit, which is today's answer. We had lots of calls. Some people thought it was taro, some none fruit, but Arthur from Makiki got it right. It was breadfruit. That's our Aloha Friday quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
And finally today, we reconnected with the veterinarian at Kei Ola, the Monk Seal Hospital on the Big Island. Dr. Sophie uh, Wariski talked with us yesterday afternoon, asking for help from the public about making sure people's pets are kept on leashes as it's currently treating a seal suffering from bite marks around its neck. Officials believe a dog is to blame. So we have two patients currently on site. Um, our first patient, Mele, came from Oahu just over two weeks ago. And she was a thin, malnourished a youngster who was just having a, a rough start to life. And then RK58 is our second patient who just arrived last week. And he's the one who we suspect had a negative interaction with a dog that was off-leash on Kauai. Oh, so, so tell us, what do, what do people need to know as they're out and about enjoying our beaches? It's really important for everyone of us when we're out on the local beaches to be able to respect the local wildlife, especially in cases of endangered species like the Hawaiian monk seal. So when folks are out walking the beaches, it's important to keep your dogs on leash and make sure to maintain a really safe, safe distance from any of the local wildlife, especially resting monk seals. And we want to make sure that we always, when we're out enjoying all of our beautiful parks and beaches, that we're following state signage and, and making sure we don't go places that are reserved for that native wildlife to be able to to rest and enjoy their lives. And, you know, there is a leash law here. So, you know, I know like here on Oahu, right, you shouldn't be allowing your dogs to just run free because they could come across something like a monk seal and, uh, and uh, you know, then you don't have control. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's really important when you have your dogs out there off leash, um, that you shouldn't have them off-leash, basically. You should keep them on leash at all times, and that will avoid any interactions. And it's really for the safety of both the animals that are out there, you know, especially Hawaiian monk seals, but also for your pets as well. We don't want those negative interactions that could go both ways. So once for the safety of your pets and for yourselves and, and local wildlife, it's important to keep your dogs on a leash. Can you talk about the injuries that that one monk seal suffered? in an encounter with a dog? Yeah, so RK58 has a number of different wounds. Um, most of them are around his neck and his face, so very close interaction with, with that dog potentially. And as well, he's also got some injuries to his flippers. And one of the injuries includes a small fracture of, of the radial bone in his left front flipper. So he actually does have uh, a bit of a bone fracture. But overall, he is showing great progress in rehabilitation now. He's being treated with antibiotics as well as pain meds, and he's making improvements every day. And is there anything you can share? I mean, did anybody witness this encounter, uh, or you know, how did this all come about? Do you know if the dog was also injured in this encounter? We don't know. We don't have a confirmed report about that. So what we what we received was um, a report about how RK what RK's condition was later on. And based on his injuries, the locations, um, the type of wounds that we saw, we were able to surmise that it looks like it is a dog bite injury, but we don't actually have a report for this specific seal. And do we know about any other of our monk seals uh, that might have uh, gone one-to-one with a, with an <laughs> animal like this, with a dog? You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because just in this past week alone here on Kona, um, We've actually had three to four calls specifically about dogs that were off-leash and getting very, very close to resting monk seals. So it is an important issue, um, and we've seen 
a bit of an uptick in recent weeks. And maybe that's people are getting out on the beaches more with the, with their dogs. Um, so we want to remind members of the public to certainly keep their dogs on a leash when they're out on those beaches. Yeah, because you don't know when you're going to come across them. I mean, I, I know I was walking one morning very early, and it was kind of dark, and almost walked right into a seal, And you know, because the NOAA folks hadn't even come yet. Nobody had notified them that uh, this monk seal had come to rest on this beach. And it was a popular beach, so, um, yeah, you just never know. Exactly. They can hide pretty well. So if you're the first on the scene, we certainly encourage you to report those sightings either to our your local hotline, uh, depending on which island you're on, or to the center's hotline, um, to let people know that those monk seals are out there and we can get folks out to be able to add some signage and make sure they get to rest. So we've got then this threat from loose dogs, but I know you folks have been also battling problems with the feral cats and toxoplasmosis, you know, where we've had a, a number of uh, our monk seals succumb to that disease. Yes, uh, that is an active issue for our main Hawaiian Islands population, especially, and it's always a concern. For Melee and RK58, both our patients on site, we are screening them for that particular disease, but so far they're thankfully not showing any clinical signs of that, um, so we're hopeful that that won't be a part of their issue. And is does that pop up? I don't know, is it a seasonal thing? Do you see more of that, or, or is, just, is it just that we have you know, a lot of feral cat populations and maybe some of the feces is just going into the ocean at various points? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we're still investigating. Um, you know, it's hard to tell uh, what the patterns are because there haven't been too, too many cases, um, at least recently, but there certainly could be a seasonal component. You know, we know from other species, like in California, the southern sea otters, it's associated with higher levels of rainfall. So things like that can potentially cause some seasonality or pulses in that disease. But for Hawaiian monk seals, that's something that we're still um, investigating. And where are we at with the uh, pupping season with our monk seals? There are a number of animals that are on watch that are expected to probably have pups in the near future. But I actually don't know the numbers at the moment. So I think the best people to talk to would be our, our NOAA partners. They would probably have a better idea for you. Okay, all right. But, I mean, is there like a normal time when... When we see a lot of these pups, I know the, with the sharks, they always say, oh, around springtime, when you see the, the <laughs> leaves, you know, on the trees, a certain uh, type of tree, that's when you know that there are sharks that are pupping out there. But so are, do we follow that same kind of schedule, do you know? We don't have a very specific season for monk seals. It can happen all year round. Okay. So it just be, it's just a good idea then to just be alert because you never know when you're going to come across a, a, an aggressive mom protecting her baby. Exactly, yep. And Very I can, important. I can see how that maybe could also be a problem if you have a loose animal, because if the mama seal is protecting her baby, certainly a, a dog could get into some serious trouble. Absolutely. And those pups are at a more vulnerable age, too. So if mom is off foraging and she's left her pup for a, a shorter period of time or if she's in the water, you know, it, it leaves that pup particularly vulnerable to a dog. So, okay. again, for both the pups, uh, the Hawaiian monk seals, as well as your dogs, you want to make sure that your dogs are on a leash. It's so hard to tell when you're going to come across a monk seal, so we do encourage folks, if you are the first person on the scene, to, to call it in so that we can send out responders and put up appropriate signage and make sure those seals are able to rest. So um, here on Hawaii Island, our center's response hotline is 808 987 
please feel free to give us a call, and we will send folks out to be able to respond. Okay. And are there uh, websites we can drive people to as well? Absolutely. If you want to learn more about our patients, RK58, RM90, um, or the mission of the Marine Mammal Center, please do visit us at marinemammalcenter.org. That was Dr. Sophie Wariski, veterinarian at Kaiola, the Marine Mammal Center in Kona, reminding people about the threat that loose dogs pose to our endangered monk seals. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up early next week, we team up with the University of Hawaii's Oral History Center to reflect on changing times. Call our talkback line. Give us some feedback. That's 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Lillian Song, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiano, and Savannah Harriman-Pote. The Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>